Hi again, welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at the various rebellions that shook Gustav Vasa's first decade on the Swedish throne. In Westrogothia, a group of noblemen, including no fewer than seven members of the Council of the Realm, the men appointed to run the country for the king, had banded together to try and topple him and replace him with one of their own. In the region of Dalarna, northwest of Stockholm, there had been no fewer than three rebellions, where the local peasants had risen up against the king they themselves had been instrumental in putting on the throne just a few short years before. All these rebellions tended to focus on two things. The new Lutheran reforms, introducing changes to the established religion in Sweden, and the king's effort to centralize the administration, concentrating more power in his own hands and increasing the taxes. Gustav Vasa managed to weather all those previous storms with a combination of propaganda, diplomacy and crushing military force, and he had managed to cling to his throne even though it had been wobbling precariously a few times. But today he'll have to face not only the biggest challenge of his reign, but the largest peasant rebellion in Scandinavian history. Episode 76, The Greatest Rebellion. By now, Gustav Vasa had been king for over 15 years, and he'd had plenty of time to implement his various reforms, religious, administrative and financial. We already covered the religious reforms in some detail, with the gradual introduction of Lutheranism and the banning and abolishing of various Catholic traditions and customs one step at a time. We've also touched on the financial reforms, where we talked about the many previous rebellions. The king needed more money to pay his debts to Lübeck and to run the country as he saw fit. And for that reason, he raised the taxes. And raising taxes never earned you many friends. The administrative reforms were also equally unpopular, though. Gustav Vasa was a hands-on ruler. Some might even call him a micromanager. He strived to tighten central control over the country and introduced a number of new laws and regulations to ensure that the power and the influence of the crown would reach also into the most remote parts of his kingdom. This was something new. The medieval state hadn't had a strong center where policy was decided and orders were issued and obeyed by all. The medieval state had been weak and decentralized, leaving much leeway and autonomy to the various regions to govern themselves as they saw fit. Now Gustav Vasa was doing his very best to change all that, and it wasn't popular everywhere. Or, come to think of it, anywhere. One of the places where the king's reforms were met with deep resentment was Småland, a region in southeastern Sweden situated on what was still then the border between Sweden and Denmark back in the 16th century. As you may have guessed, Småland literally means small lands, and it refers to the fact that the region was traditionally made up of no fewer than 11 administrative units with their own distinct identity and traditions. The geography of the various parts of Småland also varied greatly, with some parts of the region being covered by dense forests and others being fertile farmland. It was all broken up by a large number of lakes and streams as well, adding to the fragmentation. The most important urban centers in the region were the cities of Kalmar on the Baltic Sea coast, with its important harbor, its bishop and strong castle, and Växjö in the south, which also was the seat of a bishop. Then there was also the market town of Jönköping in the northwest. 
The political divisions, the geography, and the location in the margins of the kingdom meant that the people of Smallland were used to running their own affairs. It had always been tricky for the crown to get its way here, especially since much of the region was woodland and difficult to control militarily. Some of those ambushes were peasant forces that annihilated well-equipped knights and elite mercenaries that we've talked about in previous episodes had taken place in the forests of Småland. Also, maybe you remember the border peace between the peasants living close to the Swedish-Danish border. They had been common in southern Småland, where the local peasants were used to deciding for themselves what was best for them and who was their enemy and who was their friend. Frequently, those who ended up in the friends category were Danish peasants across the border, whereas armies, both Danish and Swedish, were considered enemies. Among the king's reforms that annoyed the people of Småland was the decision that unclaimed land previously used commonly by a village was now to be treated as crown land, and, of course, a new fee was introduced for any peasants who wanted to let their pigs roam in the forest now belonging to the crown. The king also claimed ownership of all oak and beech trees in the country, as well as elks and other big game. Furthermore, in an attempt to make it more difficult to avoid paying taxes, peasants were forced to report under oath how much crops they had planted in the spring, so the king's agents would be able to calculate how much tax would be expected from the harvest in the fall. But like in so many other parts of the country, the spark that ignited the war in Småland was the king's attacks on the church. And so, it's worthwhile to have a look at the changes during the 15 years between the Reformation Riksdag in Westeros that we talked about in episode 74 and the outbreak of the rebellion. It would be something of an understatement to say that the church had suffered financially in the years following the Reformation Riksdag in 1527. The new economic situation was an existential threat to the organization. The convents were in the biggest trouble. They were strapped for cash and many of their members decided to leave. Since they weren't allowed to bring in new novices either, this meant that they soon had to start to shut down, one after the other. And as the monasteries emptied out, the crown took over the buildings, the land and any other possessions left behind by the monks and nuns. But also regular parish churches were affected by the changes. The king's agents travelled back and forth in the country, taking with them valuable gold and silver objects used to decorate the churches to celebrate mass or in other ceremonies. In a highly symbolic move, showing the priorities of Gustav Vasa, even priceless handwritten religious books were confiscated and their parchment pages, some beautifully decorated, were used to as covers for accounting reports put together by royal bureaucrats. The confiscations and undermining of the financial independence of the church was bad, but things would soon get even worse. Despite vague promises at the Reformation Riksdag not to interfere with religious customs and traditions, the breaking of the political and financial power of the church was eventually followed by theological changes as well. In 1531, Sweden got its first Lutheran archbishop, Laurentius Petri. He wanted to step up the Reformation and do away with as many Catholic customs as possible. The traditional mass was high on his list. The reformer Olaus Petri had developed a Swedish mass, that is a Lutheran mass to be said in Swedish instead of Latin, so that the congregation would actually understand what was being said. To begin with, this new mass was only used in Stockholm, and it wasn't mandatory. Any congregation that wanted to could stick to the traditional Latin mass. But the traditionalists only got a few years respite. At the Synod in Uppsala in 1536, 
the new Swedish mass became mandatory throughout the kingdom. To the chagrin of working men and women everywhere in the kingdom, the number of work-free feast days was also greatly reduced. To modern ears, it may sound like people in the Middle Ages hardly worked at all. Before the Reformation, the silver mine in Sala, for instance, reported no fewer than 118 work-free days dedicated to religious observance of some kind. That's 17 weeks off every year. As I mentioned in episode 74, not all saints' days were abolished, but you'd only be allowed to celebrate the saint of your local church in addition to all the days dedicated to Jesus, the Virgin Mary and the Apostles. This reduction wasn't initially only, or even primarily, to get rid of the veneration of saints, but to get people to work more. The crown lost a lot of potential income when the workforce was allowed to rest for a whole third of the year. This reduction in work-free days obviously upset people, both because they were forced to work more and because they feared divine retribution when religious obligations were ignored. On a personal level, Gustav Vasa's support for the Reformation became increasingly theological in the late 1530s, and his earlier ambivalence, or indifference, towards religious matters seems to have evaporated. In 1538, the king attacked the Catholic Church in Sweden on theological grounds, asking the Ostrogothian nobility to support the Lutheran Reformation, accusing the local bishop and the people at Vastena Abbey of working against the Reformation. In all fairness, that's almost certainly true, but it hadn't bothered the king before. In the fall of 1539, a university teacher from Germany had been brought into Sweden to become the tutor for Gustav Vasa's oldest son, Erik. After only three months in Sweden, the king gave the tutor a new job, superintendent over the church, effectively making him the head of the church only answerable to the king. This move strengthened the king's hold of the organization, and it also pushed the traditional head of the church, the archbishop, completely to the side, making him all but irrelevant. The superintendent and his entourage soon started to make inspections in parishes all over the country. They checked that the local priests preached the proper Lutheran message, and if the inspection team wasn't happy, the priests were fired and replaced by others who were properly stoked about Lutheranism. Many of the priests, who were loyal with Rome and therefore fired, felt they had no choice but to leave the country altogether. The most senior of these clerics was Bishop Brask. Yes, the one with the note. He settled in Danzig, where he devoted much of his time to spreading propaganda against Gustav Vasa and the Reformation. This exodus of anti-Lutheran priests resulted in the domestic Catholic opposition being further weakened and the Lutheran reformers gained even more ground and power. The inspectors, checking that the parish priests were properly Lutheran, were also tasked with collecting the extra tax that the king had decided that the church would have to pay, and they also confiscated all superfluous items owned by local churches. Since they also abolished a number of Catholic practices and ceremonies, many of the vessels, often beautiful and costly pieces, made for and used in these ceremonies, were made redundant and could therefore be shipped back to the king to expand his ever-growing wealth. It's not hard to imagine the reaction of people when these strangers showed up and picked local parish churches clean of its most prized possessions. 
fired the well-known priest for preaching the things they'd always been told was the eternal truth and the path to salvation, and then replaced him with some random guy who was preaching a new, unfamiliar message. They didn't like it one bit. Already, when the inspection team arrived in Småland in 1541, they were met by a largely hostile population. People were upset and angered by the changes in the religious and economic life, and weren't particularly enthusiastic about even more royal interference. There had already been attacks on the king's agents and tax collectors in previous years. Some had even been killed, as we talked about last time. But the inspection-slash-confiscation team didn't let reports of murdered royal agents deter them. They confiscated no less than 370 kilos of silver from the churches in Småland, that represented approximately 85% of church vessels, which were seen as superfluous in a post-Catholic Småland, and therefore claimed by the crown. The locals complained that soon churches wouldn't be any nicer to enter than the bare forest. Clearly, this was before nature romanticism gripped the Swedes. The locals also complained about the new, scaled-back Swedish mass, saying that a toddler could whistle the new mass sitting in a dung carriage. Eventually, the resentment was so widespread and the opponents to the changes were so many that it was almost inevitable that it would lead to violence. The fighting broke out in the middle of June. According to the king, a few dozen forest thieves attacked two of the king's men on the Sunday before midsummer in 1541. The bailiff Nils Larsson was stripped naked and marched into the forest where he was killed. The other was a nobleman who had served the king loyally for many years. He was beaten to death. The culprits were led by a man named Nils Dacke, who had been involved in killing a royal agent already during a previous uprising in the 1530s. For that, he'd had to pay a fine of 200 marks, the equivalent of 12 full-grown oxen. Dake wasn't a rich man, so he'd probably been forced to borrow the money, but the fine had been paid in full. We know that from royal records. Since he was a peasant of modest means, we don't know very much about him, apart from the fact that he lived close to the Danish border, on a newly established farm on land that had been considered unsuitable for farming, as long as there had been other alternatives. He was married and had a young son, and his mother lived with them. Most likely, he had little or no education, but knew the local region like the back of his hand, on both sides of the border with Denmark. In his propaganda, Gustav Vasa would exploit Dacke's proximity to the border, calling his Swedishness into question, branding him a Dane. Other slurs the king would use against Dacke were thief, traitor, heretic, worse than a Jew, and a heathen. The reason the king spent so much time slandering Nils Dacke was that the incident before midsummer soon ballooned into a full-blown rebellion, and Dacke emerged as its leader. Unlike all the rebellions we talked about last time, this was a grassroots initiative through and through. The leaders weren't noblemen or bishops, but regular peasants who were fed up. That gave this rebellion a partially different character, and it scared the elites who didn't have anyone of their own leading the rebels, someone they could understand or identify with. The fact that they weren't led by nobles with military training didn't mean that the rebellion wasn't dangerous. The peasants in Småland were all armed and organized to defend their villages. 
this organization could be used against the king's men, as we've seen in repeated episodes how well medieval knights fared when they tried to pass through the dense forest of Småland, where irate peasants were hiding in ambush. It's impossible to know how many men could be called upon, but in rebellions in the early years of the 16th century, there had been approximately 1,000 men with crossbows, and most people were probably only equipped with simpler weapons like clubs, axes and pikes. This time, the rebellion attracted even more people. After the murder of the two royal officials, Nils Dake called a thing, where he succeeded in convincing the locals to join in the rebellion. But in parallel, the king also had his loyal officials called things in the region, where they tried to convince the peasants to remain loyal and not join the rebellion. This shows us that the things were still important events. The local community still structured its life and rules around the thing, and a decision at a thing wasn't something you could wiggle out of so easily. But they weren't going to the same things. The king's men were busy raising support in the area around Kalmar, whereas Nils Dake focused on the southern parts of Småland, on the border with Denmark. The rebel leader even crossed the border and made an alliance with Danish peasants in the region of Blekinge, similar to the border peace agreements of old. The peasants on both sides of the border resolved to defend each other against attacks from the king, whether it be Gustav Vasa or Christian III. The two Scandinavian monarchs had actually concluded an agreement of their own only a year before, promising to come to each other's help in case of an attack by a foreign power or in case of exactly this kind of rebellion. So ironically, Gustav Vasa was colluding with the Danes just as much as he accused Nils Dake of doing. Parallel to the attempts to rally support, there were also military preparations going on. The peasants were roaming the countryside, plundering and burning crown property, and that belonging to people seen to be loyal to the crown. The king saw that he wasn't going to crush this rebellion early and with diplomacy, so he ordered noblemen in neighboring regions to gather their forces and move on Småland. Military commanders all over the country were also ordered to raise troops to keep in reserve if needed. But at the same time, the king didn't want news about the rebellion to spread because he feared that that might encourage others to join in, since, as he put it in one of his letters, they had much the same complaints as the people of Småland. So the officials who received orders to raise troops were also told not to let anyone know that there was trouble brewing in Småland. By the end of July, some 1,000 men commanded by Nils Dake met a royal force of some 400 soldiers close to Växjö, the city in western Småland that was turning into the center of the rebellion. The two forces met in a battle which ended without any clear winner. That in and of itself was a defeat for the king's army, since it had failed to win against a bunch of armed peasants. The sides met for negotiations at Barikvara Castle, a fortress just west of Veksha, held by the crown. Nilstake attended personally, presenting the rebel demands, a return to Latin mass, lower taxes and less royal interference in people's lives. The king's representatives weren't authorized to agree to any of those demands, obviously, but they did agree to a truce that would last until All Saints' Day in the fall. But just because there wouldn't be any more fighting, that didn't mean that nothing was actually happening. The fact that the rebel peasants had avoided being wiped out, in combination with the threat that a royal army always posed, even to loyal peasants, led to more and more villages joining the rebel side. 
Gustav Vasa wasn't happy when he received reports about how the war was going, and he had no intention of honoring the truce his representatives had agreed to either. Instead, the king started preparing for a new campaign to teach the rebellious locals a lesson. The plan was to attack from the north and the west simultaneously, and that a Danish force would enter from the south at the same time. The king was eager to attack again, but the Danes took their sweet time to get ready, so only in September all the troops were ready to attack. By that time, the rebels had caught wind of the plans and were ready to face the onslaught. Nilstake had let people know that they should respect the truce, but be prepared for an attack if the king chose to violate the agreement. In September, Gustav Vasa gave the order to attack. He travelled to Ostrogothia to be closer to the action, but he didn't take personal command. He never did, unless the enemy was already beaten and the only military action left was to punish already vanquished rebels. There was fierce fighting on several fronts and the king's army managed to take the rebel-held city of Veksha, but that didn't mean the king had won. Nilstake and his men just melted away into the forest where the soldiers were unwilling to follow since they knew the obvious risks all too well. Soon enough, the constant rebel attacks forced the king's troops to start to retreat, both in the north and in the west. By October, Gustav Vasa only controlled Jönköping in the northwest and Kalmar in the east. The rest of Småland was back in the hands of the rebels. The humiliated and furious king had no choice but to agree to yet another round of negotiations. When he couldn't win on the battlefield, Gustav Vasa once again reverted to producing propaganda. A flood of insults and various half-truths and lies streamed out of the royal chancery in the fall of 1542. The king not only insulted and defamed Niels Dacke, but also the people of Småland as a whole. Despite the king's best efforts, news of the rebellion had spread by now, so Gustav Vasa sent letters to things in other parts of the kingdom trying to make the rebels sound as bad as possible. The king claimed that the people in Småland had rebelled because the crown no longer allowed them to sell their oxen to Denmark across the border, and that it was this trading cattle that somehow was the root cause for the economic woes in the rest of the country. So if all other Swedes would just support the king against the people of Småland, their situation would magically improve. In order to stress the unpatriotic nature of the rebellion, the king also claimed that the people of Småland wanted to break away from Sweden and join Denmark. In contrast to the greedy and selfish peasants of Småland, Gustav Vasa portrayed himself as someone who only thought of the greater good and what was best for his people. He insisted that he, and only he, could guarantee peace, stability and prosperity in the kingdom. After all, he had secured peace for the last 20 years, if you didn't count the various rebellions that had plagued the country every now and then, which you definitely shouldn't. He defended the tax increases, stating that it cost a lot of money to defend the country and to govern it properly. People should be grateful and not complain. But they should also have let the king known earlier about their financial problems, but apparently not in a whiny, complainy sort of way. If he'd only known about the people's issues, he'd acted earlier. And now that he did know, he'd do everything he could in his power to help his loyal subjects. The king also stressed that people shouldn't be tricked into listening to malcontent priests who complained about changes and wished to return to the bad old days of traditional religion and papal control over the church. 
In letters to the nobility, the king did what he could to dissuade them from joining the rebellion against him, like they had done during the Westrogothian thunder. Gustav Vasa described the rebellion as a dangerous uprising of peasants, and offered to protect the noblemen, their families, and their valuables if they would just seek refuge in castles controlled by the crown. In early November, as the old truce that the king had violated was about to expire, the two sides met again, and a new agreement was reached. Even though Gustav Vasa didn't like the fact that he'd been forced to the negotiating table, he must have been pretty happy with the deal. The rebels agreed to stop fighting, promised loyalty to the king, and pledged to help defend him and the kingdom against foreign and domestic threats. In return, Gustav Vasa promised to look into their complaints and to try to help them as much as possible. And even if the king wasn't happy with the arrangement, there were plenty of rebels who thought he'd gotten too sweet a deal. The rest of that fall, Nils Dake was busy trying to convince the other rebels to stick to the agreement and stop plundering and attacking crown property. It wasn't easy. Toward the end of the year, the Holy Roman Emperor himself sent a delegation to Nils Dake, offering him an alliance against Gustav Vasa. But the rebel leader turned the emperor down, saying that he'd reached an agreement with the king, they had sworn oaths, and it would be dishonorable to break them. The king, on the other hand, suffered from no such scruples. He continued to raise troops, eager to crush the rebellion and to punish those who had been involved in it. In February 1543, he felt ready, so he once again violated the truce and attacked. But in his propaganda, the king insisted that it had been the rebels who broke the agreement and attacked first, of course. This time, Nils Dake was caught off guard by the attack. But when he realized what was happening, he mobilized his forces and sent them toward Kalmar to meet the invading armies. He also sent troops northward along the coast to spread the word and to gather additional support. But this time, the king's army was just too strong and the rebels were pushed back. There was a battle at the end of March, which turned into something of a last stand for the rebels. Nils Dake was wounded, shot through both thighs. He was brought to safety by his men, but the rebels lost the battle and were routed. Thanks to the help from Danish troops, Gustav Vasa managed to capture Veksjö, the centre of the rebellion. When the defeat became known, more and more villages laid down their arms and surrendered. But it wasn't over yet. The king put a blockade on Småland, causing hunger and financial trouble for the population. He also didn't meet any of their demands, so when Nils Dakebri appeared, healed from his wounds around midsummer 1543, the rebellion burst into flames yet again, this time fueled not only by resentment, but also by desperation. But the king had the upper hand, and his superior forces managed to crush the renewed rebellion relatively quickly. Dake fled toward the Danish border, but was killed in August 1543. His death put a definitive end to the largest peasant rebellion in the history of Scandinavia. Now the only thing remaining was the king's revenge on the rebels. And it was to be harsh, Gustav Vasa style. The king was furious that Nils Dake hadn't been caught alive, but the rebel leader's body was still brought to Kalmar. There it was chopped up into pieces and the head was displayed on a pike with a mock crown made of copper placed on it. The surviving rebels and the priests who had supported Dake were hunted down, arrested, interrogated, many tortured and executed. Many of the regular peasants who had participated in the uprising were deported to Finland, where they were forced into military service to boost the defense of the kingdom's eastern border. 
farms belonging to deported rebels were confiscated by the crown, and villages throughout Småland, Erland and Ostrogothia had to pay heavy collective fines for having joined the rebellion. Dacke's own family, his son, wife and mother, called the witch by the king, were all arrested. The young boy eventually died in prison, unclear if from neglect, abuse or execution. Nils Dacke and his rebels had fought to regain their traditional autonomy and for return of traditional religion. The result of their rebellion turned out to be the exact opposite. The crown's control over the region was strengthened, not lessened, as the rebels had wanted. The region was divided into two separate administrative units, and the king made sure none of the governors would be local with any connections or loyalties to the people they were set to govern. The church in Småland also felt the king's wrath. He accused them of having supported the rebellion and confiscated all lands and estates belonging to the church and to the bishop of Veksjö, his castle, Kronoberg, where Nils Dacke had placed his headquarters, was confiscated and turned into a modern castle, part of the border defences against Denmark. From now on, the priests were also forced to swear an oath of loyalty to the crown and tighter control was placed on their education. More frequent inspections made sure they were preaching a strict Lutheran form of Christianity and the priests weren't allowed to study any Catholic texts from now on. The Dacke War, as the rebellion became known, had been the most serious threat to Gustav Vasa's reign, and that says a lot considering the number of peasant uprisings that he had to face in the last episode. But the king managed to crush this rebellion as well, and when it was all over, he consolidated his position and concentrated even more power to the crown. Nils Dacke's rebellion also showed Gustav Vasa that there was yet another untapped resource in the country, military manpower so the king decided to set up a standing army of locals instead of relying on temporary forces gathered together by the nobles ad hoc and then hiring foreign mercenaries to cover the rest. Now, the king set up an army of 15,000 locals. He drew especially heavy on Småland to sap the region of its military potential, but officially to teach the men there an honourable way to be soldiers instead of lying about in the bushes and fighting like cowards and animals, as he put it in one of his letters. Gustav Vasa hoped that this new army would pacify the country after these endless rebellions and protect it from enemies, both domestic and foreign. He also hoped he wouldn't have to pay for expensive and unreliable foreign mercenaries in the future. To further strengthen the grip over Sweden, Gustav Vasa had a number of castles built, or revamped, all over the country. Just like Kronoberg, these castles were meant to serve as a defense both against foreign invasions and domestic unrest. Many of these castles, in places like Uppsala, Örebro and Gripsholm, can still be visited today. So Gustav Vasa was now secure on the throne, at least as far as internal rebellions were concerned. But he faced other challenges. After all, he was a parvenu on the royal stage, and next time we'll have a look at his attempts at establishing himself as a real king and his family as the undisputed royal dynasty in Sweden. In doing so, he'll have to change the structure of Swedish society and break with centuries of legal tradition. But as I'm sure you've noticed by now, Gustav Vasa wasn't one to shy away from a challenge in order to enforce his will. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did... Why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian History-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.